Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Welcome those of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are worshiping together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, South Calgary, and in Northwest Calgary. And I'd really appreciate it if for just a moment you pretended you were at a hockey game and you had a little bit of the spirit that tends to be at a hockey game after the Calgary Flames score. And uh, with that in mind, you would express your love and appreciation for the rest of our church family that are meeting in other parts of the city by shouting, whistling, or clapping heartily. Would you do that right now? Uh. Whoa. Wow. You know, I think Jesus would be really happy if once in a while we had a bit of that kind of enthusiasm uh, in church. Amen. Amen. Okay. You know, we may be meeting in different locations, but we are one church committed to the same Lord and to the same mission, and we rejoice in all that God is doing in us and through us in various parts of this city. A number of years ago, our staff and uh, our church leaders spent much time in prayer over a period of about 18 months uh, seeking God's direction for our church. And as a result of our time together, we sense God calling us to give focused attention to making disciples. It just always comes back to that because that's what Jesus commissioned us to do. Uh, disciples who are committed to pursuing God, to pursuing authentic relationships, to pursuing the mission that God has called us to, also pursuing generosity and simplicity as a way of life. Well, over the last three years, during the fall season, we have given special attention to the first three pursuits. And starting this weekend, as you've heard, uh, we are focusing on the fourth pursuit um, of a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that is of generosity. You know, we serve an amazingly generous God. Our God owns everything that we have, everything that we are, Everything that we enjoy, every heartbeat is a gift from his gracious hand. He delights it. Um, he delights in being generous to us. And he wants us to enjoy all that he has provided for us. He only asks that we would be good managers of the gifts that he has entrusted to us. And that we would join him in being generous with that. And consequently, a lifestyle of generosity is normal for a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So would you stand with me right now as we just dedicate this time and also this series of messages in God's word to the Lord in prayer. I'm just going to ask you if you would just open your hands to him again to receive from him. Our Father, thank you for being so incredibly generous with us. Please grow us now in our understanding and practice of generosity, that our lives may truly be a reflection of your heart of love and grace. Please focus our minds, soften our hearts, 
Give us the will and also the courage to be and do whatever it is you want us to be and do. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) Author James Byron Smith tells the story of a man named Ben whom he met during a summer job at a retirement community. Ben was a rather miserable, crusty old fellow who had no visitors and who rarely left his room. Ben took a liking to James over a period of three weeks of small talk. Ben requested to meet with him personally. And he ended up really sharing um, a sort of confession with James. He said, I was born in 1910. I made my first million when I was 25 years old. By the age of 45, I was the richest man in my state. Politicians wanted to be my friend. My motto was simple, take all you can from whoever you can. I amassed wealth, and everyone was impressed with me. I had a lot of power in those days. Had over 2,000 employees, and all of them looked up to me or were afraid of me. Money was all I really cared about. I had three wives, all of who left me, either because of neglect on my part or because they caught me in one of of several affairs. I had one daughter, I have one daughter, who is now in her 40s, but she refuses to speak to me. I suppose you could say that I ruined my life because today I have nothing, really. Oh, I still have a lot of money, more than I could ever spend in a lifetime. But that brings me no joy. I sit here each day waiting to die. I have nothing but bad memories. I cared about no one in my life, and now no one cares about me. In his book, The Applause of Heaven, Max the Cattle tells the story of another man. His name is Robert Reed. Lakata writes, Robert's hands are twisted. His feet are useless. He can't bathe himself. He can't feed himself. He can't brush his teeth, comb his hair, or put on his underwear. Robert has cerebral palsy. The disease keeps him from doing the things most of us take for granted, like going for a walk, riding a bike, or driving a car. But it didn't keep him from graduating from university with a degree in Latin. Having cerebral palsy didn't keep him from teaching at a junior college or venturing overseas on five mission trips. It didn't prevent him from becoming a missionary in Portugal. Years ago now, he moved to Lisbon alone where he rented a hotel room and he began to study Portuguese. He found a restaurant owner who would feed him after the rush hour and a tutor who would instruct him in Portuguese. And then he would station himself daily in a park where he distributed brochures about his friend Jesus. Within six years, he had introduced over 70 people to Jesus Christ. Lakato describes a worship service that he attended in which Robert was speaking. Lakato says, I watched other men carry him in his wheelchair onto the platform. 
I watched them lay a Bible in his lap. I watched his stiff fingers force open the pages. I watched people in the audience wipe away tears of admiration from their faces. And I watched him hold a bent hand up into the air and at the top of his lungs shout, I have everything I need for joy. Now both of these stories are true. And I believe they have something to say to each one of us. One man had everything this world has to offer, things that people will sell their souls to attain. And yet he ends up alone, bitter, despairing of life itself. The other has little of what this world has to offer and yet boldly proclaims, I have everything I need for joy. Now, you know, I doubt that when Ben was young, that he said to himself, I think I will make a series of selfish decisions in an attempt to ruin my life so that I'll be alone and miserable when I grow old. No, Ben thought that he was pursuing the good life. He thought he was on a pathway that would lead to satisfaction and joy. The problem is he embraced a set of beliefs and values that were a crock of baloney, a pack of lies. Too late he discovered that the gods that he worshipped most of his life were counterfeit gods that let him down big time. Too, big, too late he realized that this ladder of success that he had been climbing all of his life was leaning against the wrong wall. And his life ended up alone, disillusioned, and living with a lot of regret. Robert, on the other hand, embraced a different set of beliefs and values. And despite his many limitations, his life took a significantly different trajectory than that of Ben's. You see, whether we're aware of it or not, there are forces around us that seek to captivate our attention and our allegiance. Forces that seek to persuade us to believe certain things to value and want certain things, to spend our money in certain ways, and to live our lives certain ways. And these forces could be referred to as kingdoms or cultures. Each kingdom or culture has a worldview that explains what's wrong with our life, why we're often unhappy and miserable and discontented in life, and proposes a solution to our misery or our unhappiness. One kingdom could be called the kingdom of this world. This earthly kingdom attempts to convince us that happiness, success, and fulfillment is found in living the good life, a life filled with money and sex and power. This earthly kingdom boldly asserts that it's all about you, you are at the center of the universe. You deserve to be happy, so look out for number one, demand your rights, 
Don't suppress your desires. If it feels good, do it. Another message that this elusive kingdom machine guns into our heads is your value as a person is linked to what you do. It is linked to what you own, to what you wear, to what you drive, and to where you live. The more power and status and stuff that you have, the more respected you will be, and the happier, content, and satisfied you will be in life. The other kingdom is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom that Jesus is the king of. A kingdom that is polar opposite to that of the kingdom of this world. Whereas the kingdom of the world says it's all about you, the kingdom of God says, no, no, no. It's not about you. It's about the God who created you. And he loves you more than you'll ever know. Whereas the kingdom of this world is all about seeking the approval and the admiration of others, the kingdom of God is all about seeking God and living all out for him. Whereas the kingdom of this world is about getting and accumulating wealth, the kingdom of God is about giving and being radically generous. My question to you is, when you examine what it is you're giving your life to, which kingdom are you really living for? When you look at your lifestyle and the level of your generosity, in whom are you really trusting? In whom are you really living for? Is it Christ or is it our culture? Now, you know what? I believe that people want to be generous. Most people realize that the selfish, greedy life is a lonely and a miserable life. Studies have shown that Jesus was right when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. People who are generous feel more fulfilled and satisfied than those who spend what they have on themselves. And the reason for this, I believe, is we are made in the image of God, which means deep down inside, we are wired up to be generous. The way that God is generous, and we receive much joy and satisfaction, as the research shows, when we are generous. However, there's a problem. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, our relationship with God and with one another was fractured. And our wiring got short-circuited, so to speak. Evil and selfishness entered into the cosmos. And ever since then, our default has been on getting rather than giving. It's no longer natural for us to be radically generous or to put the interests of other people ahead of ourselves. And so the question is, how can we break the, this power of selfishness and cultivate instead a life of generosity, which we're called to by our Lord? Well, the antidote to greed and selfishness is in doing the opposite. It is found in giving and living a life of generosity. 
Not a token generosity that makes us feel good. Oh, I'm generous. You know, but essentially costs us nothing. But a growing sacrificial generosity that comes from a heart and a mind that has been transformed by Jesus Christ himself. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Paul says, if you want to break free from the selfish and the greedy pattern of our culture, it's going to require a change of mind and a change of heart. At the core, it's going to require a change of mind about who you really trust in. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in which he described the kingdom of God, in which he described this upside-down kingdom that he came to introduce to the world. And I'd like you to look at verse 24, where Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, some Bible versions say you cannot serve God and mammon. I like the word mammon because it includes more than money. Mammon really includes those things that our culture would define as success. And could include money, of course, but also power and position, fame, and so forth. And so in this passage, Jesus wants us to understand that when it comes to what we have and what we are pursuing in life, we must make a choice. We can serve God or we can serve mammon. Notice Jesus does not say here, you must not serve two masters. He says, you cannot serve two masters. It's impossible to serve both. We have to decide who we're going to trust in this life. You see, we all serve some sort of God, even if that God is ourselves. We all serve someone. And Jesus says, you can only serve one God at a time. You see, the word serve in the original language means to be a slave, whereas the word master denotes absolute ownership. And what that means is you can't serve two masters part-time because each master requires all of you. Jesus says our hearts have room for only one all-encompassing devotion. In the same way that a woman cannot have two husbands or a husband have two wives. I mean, husbands, if you really want to know the emotion um, by which Jesus is teaching this, just tell your wife that you intend to be faithful to her 90% of the time. And I highly recommend that you be prepared either to duck or to run real hard right after you say that. You see, we need to understand that there is nothing so hurtful and emotionally insulting to our Lord than to take Jesus' name upon us and then go and live a life that clearly demonstrates that we're more in love with the counterfeit gods of this world than we are 
with Jesus. William Barclay has said, surely there is no better description of a man's God than to say that his God is the power in whom he trusts. And when a man puts his trust in material things, then material things have become not his support, but his God. You see, our values, our financial decisions, what we invest our gifts and talents in are all a reflection of who we are trusting in. God sees them as inseparable. If we're going to break free from selfishness and greed, therefore, and live a life of radical generosity, we need to come to grips with the question, who do I really trust? This question is addressed by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. He illustrates for us what it means to trust God and God alone. To begin with, trusting God alone means you find your identity and your significance in him. Look at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the word treasures is a very broad term which includes much more than money. Anything or any one could be your treasure or your idol if you value it as such. Your treasure, treasure could even be how well you look physically. Your treasure could be the approval of others. The list is very long of what your treasure could be. Now make no mistake, Jesus never said that any of these earthly treasures are wrong in themselves. He said they are dangerous because we might sell out to something that doesn't last. Jesus is warning us not to allow earthly treasures become the basis of our identity or significance. You see, the real danger of treasuring earthly treasures is we allow what we have or don't have to tell us who we are. It's letting our six-figure income, our position in the corporation, our degrees and trophies tempt us into believing that that makes us important and successful. And on the other hand, letting a, a, a low-paying job or a lack of education or a small apartment and a rusted-out jalopy tempt us into believing that we are unimportant or of little significance. That's why we get so upset when things we treasure are lost or when things we treasure are taken away from us or why we struggle with being generous. Or why we get upset when pastors talk about money. Because our identity is all wrapped up in our treasure. And the thought of losing it or having to give it up just really upsets us. Gerald Mann asks, Can you be irrespective of what you have? 
do you have to have in order to be somebody? If you lost everything, including your money, your possessions, your trophies, your degrees, could you still be someone? In other words, what is the source of our identity? Is it God our creator? Or is it really focused on the things that he's created? So let me be clear about who we are as Christ followers. As Christ followers, our identity is based not on what our culture says we are. It is not based even on what other people may say we are. No, as Christians, our identity is based on who Jesus says we are. And he says we are his children. We are a royal priesthood, children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, precious children for whom he died. Now, in verse 24, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart follows what you treasure. If you treasure stocks in a certain company or whatever, guess where your heart's going to go? You're going to fret about those stocks. You're going to think about your, those stocks. You're going to get to the paper and look those stocks up all the time. Wherever your money goes, wherever your treasure is, your heart's going to follow. And if your identity, therefore, is based on earthly possessions, your heart would worship these things and you will resist giving them up because they are your God. On the other hand, if you trust Jesus and you base your identity on him and who he says you are, then your heart's going to be attached to him and to his agenda and his mission and his kingdom. And as a result, you're going to hold earthly treasures loosely because you see them as temporary stuff that you know, has the potential of rotting or rusting or getting ripped off. You see it for what it is. And yes, you enjoy it and, and you, you use it and, and whatever else, but you hold it loosely. And thereby, you're able to be generous with it. Because your treasure is Jesus and your heart's attached to Jesus. So first of all, trusting God alone means you find your identity and your significance in him. Furthermore, trusting God alone means you embrace his eternal perspective. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then a light within you, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus uses our physical vision here as a metaphor of spiritual vision. He's saying, what you treasure in life, how generous you are in this life, depends in large part how clearly you see this life through God's eyes. In other words, through, from God's eternal perspective rather than from your own limited earthly perspective. 
If you believe that this life is all that there is, you'll have little reason to put the interests or the needs of others ahead of yourself. You'll have little reason or desire to be sacrificially generous. Oh, you might be a little generous just to feel good, make yourself feel good, but you won't be sacrificially generous, which explains why, why most of the people in the West you know, aren't generous. Because most people don't believe in God, and, and well, they might believe in God, but, but they, they think this life is it. Christ followers have an entirely different perspective. Randy Elkhorn says that we see this life as the preface, not the book, as the preliminaries, not the main event, as the tune-up, not the concert. And because we see differently, we live differently, we invest differently, we have different values and priorities, and we do so without apology or regret because it all makes perfect sense to those who have an eternal perspective of life. You know, if friends of yours, or let's say your parents, told you that they were planning to go on a three-week uh, vacation to Europe, and in preparation for that trip, they were going to sell their home and their vehicles and move all of their clothes and furniture and their money to Europe, you would be greatly concerned about the state of their mental health. And that's because we all know that when you go on vacation for a few weeks, you take along enough money to basically cover your anticipated needs during that three weeks, and you take a suitcase for him and six suitcases for her, and uh, just kidding. But no, you, you don't take it all to Europe because you're going to be there just for three weeks. I mean, you're just passing through. You're seeing the sights for three weeks. Your real home is here. Well, you see, that's an illustration of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying if your permanent home is heaven, if you're going to spend forever there, and you're only going to basically spend maybe 100 years at best here on this earth, it makes no sense to stockpile all your treasures here. It makes a whole lot more sense to send most of them ahead. But you see, whether or not we actually live this way all comes down to the same question. Do we believe Jesus? And you know, lots of us believe in Jesus, but do we believe him? Do we trust him? Well, most of us here would say, well, yeah, I do. But if we're honest, there are times we live like we don't believe him. I'd be lying if I didn't admit that this is a regular struggle for me. We live in a material world. We can get sucked into its pattern, into its thinking. We see, when we see others living the good life, purchasing the latest and the best, when we see people care about, think, uh, uh, when we see people who we care about think we're nuts when we're being sacrificially generous for investing our lives in eternal things of God rather than earthly treasures. It is so tempting 
to lose our focus and our resolve. And Jesus is saying through this illustration here in verse 22, he's saying the key to being generous and staying generous and avoiding lapsing back into greed and into materialism is a singular focus, keeping your eyes on Jesus and his eternal perspective. Having a singular focus, for example, involves reminding yourself often how possessions and how pleasures lose their appeal and how they wear out in time. How your desire to have new things and new thrills, how the lust to have the newest and the best never goes away. You're always reaching and wanting, lusting after the the newest thing, the latest version. Having a singular eternal focus involves reminding yourself often of the day you stood at the deathbed of someone who had everything except God. And how you realized in that moment that immortality is not found in the building of an empire or by having your name etched on a trophy or on some building or your picture on the cover of a national journal. Because empires fall and buildings collapse and the famous are eventually forgotten. Having a singular focus will involve reminding yourself of the day you watched on television the tragic shooting of 20 children in Newtown, Connecticut, or the collapse of financial markets around the world in 2008, and you realize perhaps for the first time that true safety and financial security cannot be found on this planet, but can only ultimately be found in God. Folks, trusting Jesus alone involves keeping your vision clear, focusing on him, and having an eternal perspective of life. So let me review. Trusting God alone, first of all, means you you find your identity and your significance in him and not in your stuff. And secondly, it means embracing his eternal perspective. And finally, trusting God alone means you serve and surrender him alone. Surrender to him alone. In verse 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And in verse 33, he tells us which master we need to serve. He says, but seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom. Give your life to God's kingdom. You'll never regret giving your life to God's kingdom is what Jesus says. In the context of his entire Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus is saying to you and to me, you'll never know true fulfillment and satisfaction in this life. Trust me in this. You will never experience the amazing adventure that God has in store for you. Trust me in this. You'll never experience the amazing fruit of sacrificial generosity until you make a decision about who your master, who your king, and who your Lord will be. And That has to be more than just words. It needs to be a heart decision that involves surrendering to him and him alone. You know, in Matthew 19, we read the story of a a young man who was both powerful and wealthy. He had everything most people could 
ever want in life, and yet he was miserable. I mean, what could he possibly be missing? Well, Mark Batterson says he was following the rules, but he wasn't following Jesus. And I think that is true of far too many people in far too many churches. The Bible tells us that he kept all the rules. He did all the good things, and there's nothing wrong with doing all those good things. He did nothing wrong, but you see, you can do nothing wrong. Your Christianity can be summarized by, I don't do this, I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. And that's all well and good. Nothing wrong with that. But for many Christians, that's where it stops. Sometimes our Christianity is defined by what we don't do rather than by what we do do. Jesus saw the young man's true God was his possessions. And even though there was all these things he wasn't doing, he was hung up on all of this other stuff. And he essentially said to him, you can't serve two gods. If you want to follow me, you're going to need to get rid of your God. You're going to have to get, away. You're going to have to get rid of your possessions. And the scripture says the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. Batterson says the story of the rich young ruler is one of the saddest stories in the Bible because he could have leveraged all of his resources, his network, and his energy for the cause of Christ, and instead he spent it all on himself. He thought that that is what would make him happy when in the end it was what made him miserable. He, it reveals something that we all need to take note of. And that is that our greatest asset, you know, be your greatest asset your money, be your greatest asset your talent, be your greatest asset your time. These things become our greatest liability and source of frustration and source of fear and worry if we don't surrender it to God, if we don't use it for God's purposes. You know, Batterson says, if you feel bad for this rich young ruler, it shouldn't be because of what Jesus asked him to give up. It should be because of the opportunity he passed up. You see, what Jesus asked him to give up was nothing compared to the priceless faith-building experiences Jesus would have given to him in return. It was an opportunity of a lifetime, but he didn't have the guts to go for it. Think of what he missed. He missed the priceless adventure of being with Jesus for over three years. Three years of, of, of camping and fishing and hiking with Jesus, walking the very trails throughout ancient Israel, and in that process receiving coaching and wisdom and direction from Jesus himself. He missed hearing firsthand the sermons that Jesus preached. He missed the miracles that Jesus performed. And most of all, he missed seeing the resurrected Christ on Resurrection Sunday. Imagine if that opportunity were given to you, is there any earthly treasure that you wouldn't part with in order to spend three plus years with Jesus? 
Now, before we judge the rich young ruler too harshly for his folly, I wonder how many of us are missing out all that Jesus has for us because we're keeping Jesus at a safe, comfortable distance no different than the rich young ruler did. How many of us are missing out on the faith-building adventures that Jesus has in store for us because we don't fully trust him? Because we think he doesn't have our best interests at heart. That if we surrender our lives totally to him, oh my goodness, he's going to mess up everything and, and we're going to regret it the rest of our lives. We can't trust him. We've got to do this on our own. But you see, in God's eyes, surrender is not a negative thing. It's a very good thing. You know, about 90 days ago, I decided it was time for me to increase my overall fitness level. And in order to do that, I made a decision to submit to a fitness instructor who promised that if I trusted him and faithfully did what he asked me to do, I would achieve my fitness goals. Now, the workout routines were brutal. They were incredibly strenuous. In fact, some would say they were insane. And there was hardly a day I didn't feel like I'd been run over by a fullback. And there were times I came ever so close to packing it in. But you know why I hung in there? In part, it was because I was determined to honor God by taking care of my health. But along with that, I hung in there because I made a decision to trust the trainer, to believe that he knew what he was doing, that he wasn't out to hurt me, he was out to help me, that he had my best interests at heart. Now, you know, if I had chosen not to trust him, if I began to believe that I knew better than the fitness trainer of how to get fit, if I had decided along the way that I would kind of pick and choose what I was going to do and what I was going to trust him in, I would have missed out all that he had for me and I would not have achieved the outcomes that I wanted. But you know what I really appreciated? I didn't have to spend endless hours researching and trying to figure out by myself the best exercises to get physically fit, how to do them properly, how many of them to do, when to do them, in what order to do them, and all the rest that comes with that. All that was required of me was to trust the trainer, to believe he knew best, the best workout routines and to show up and follow what he told me to do. See, this is the wonderful thing about surrender. Now, I think we understand the, this principle of surrender in the human realm. But we often don't understand its importance in the spiritual realm. Our God you think about this, is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere present. He is the creator of you and me and of the entire universe. He loves us more and he knows us better than anyone else ever could. He knows how we are made. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses, our gifts and our talents. He knows what will bring us the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction in life. He has our best interests at heart. 
He wants to be our friend and to help us live and experience this life to the full and achieve the purpose that he has called us to and to spend forever with him in heaven. And through Jesus, he reaches out to us and he says to us, trust me. Let me be your friend and your guide. And so often, like the rich young ruler, we pull back and we say, oh, gee, I don't know. You know, I think I can figure this thing out by myself. Or maybe we go halfway with him and say, okay, I'll, I'll trust you with, you know, saving me and getting me to heaven. And, or maybe I'll trust you with this part of my life, but, you know, I'm not going to trust you with this relationship or I'm not going to trust you with my career. And, you know, I'm not going to trust you with my business or my money. You know, hands off. And then we wonder why we're miserable and frustrated in life. Why Christianity seems to be boring and unfulfilling or why our life feels empty or why our faith is so weak and there is so little joy and peace in our lives. It's because we're not all in with Jesus. See, we need to surrender. We need to let go of control and stop trying to figure it all out ourselves. And stop trying to do what only God can do. See, God's job is to do amazing things in us and through us. Our job is to surrender to our amazing God and show up. That's it. People say, what does it mean to live the surrendered life? It means to wake up every day and to say to our Lord, God, here I am. My hands are open to you. Would you please do this day with me? Would you show me? Would you guide me? Would you whisper to me what you want me to do? or what you want me to say, or who you want me to speak to, or pray with, or perhaps give something to? I'm listening, Lord. True surrender doesn't involve trying to impress God. It involves trusting God to fill us, empower us, to guide us, and live his life through us. Surrender is being all in for Jesus. It's based on the conviction that every heartbeat, every breath, every ounce of energy, every nickel, everything that I am and have is a gift from his generous hand and that he is a good God who has my best interests at heart and therefore he can be completely trusted. You know, more than 50 years ago, 95-year-old Stanley Tam who I met about six years ago, actually. He, he made a decision to be all in with God. And he made a decision to transfer every share of the corporation that he had founded to God, who he referred to as his senior partner. It was a tough thing to do. He had trouble finding lawyers who would do it. I mean, how do you transfer a corporation into the name of God? 
Took a while, but he pulled it off. And Stanley, instead of becoming the owner of this corporation, he became a salaried employee of the company. And since that time, Stanley has invested over $120 million into the kingdom of God through the profits of that company. Tom Monahan, founder of Domino's Pizza, also made a decision to be all in with God. After selling Domino's, he determined to devote the rest of his life to giving away all that he had in order to advance the cause of Christ. He says, my main goal in life is to help as many people as possible to get to heaven. A couple in our church made a decision to be all in for God. At the prompting of God, they decided to live mostly on only one of their, one of their salaries and to invest the rest mostly into the ministry and mission of the church. A young professional in our church made a decision to be all in with God. In response to God's leading, he vacated his beautiful home, moved in crowded quarters with a few other young men so that a young family in need of a home would have a place to stay until they could get back on their feet, not only financially, but also vocationally. We have so many other stories like this in our church that we could tell, but my point is, this is what trusting Jesus looks like. This is what it means to live the surrendered life, to be all in and to live all out for Jesus. It's not just singing, I surrender all. No, it is trusting Jesus enough to live, to actually live the surrendered life. Whether God calls us to do something of great magnitude or something as basic as praying with or serving someone, being all in with Jesus is being available to do whatever God is calling you to do. You know, more than 100 years ago, a British preacher made a statement that would impact the life of millions. He said, the world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through the person who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. My question is, why not you? And why not now? Let us pray. Before I pray, I'm wondering how many of us would have to admit that we're in a similar place that the rich young ruler was at. We're keeping Jesus at a safe distance because we just don't fully trust him. If you're at that place, I'm wondering, will you like Ben, who we talked about earlier, or like the rich young ruler, will you have any regrets one day when you come to the end of your life? If you want to experience all that God has for you, then now is the time to draw a line in the sand. Now is the time to say, Lord Jesus, I choose to trust you, to surrender, to be all in. 
And some of you made a decision some time ago to be all in. But your resolve, you would have to say, has been weakening. You want to renew your resolve today. Others of you would have to admit you've never fully surrendered control of your life to God. I'm going to invite you to take the first courageous step in that direction by getting up out of your seat and making your way up here to the front of whatever room you're meeting in, in our regionals. As a visible expression of your desire to be all in for the Lord. In coming forward, you are saying, Lord, I I don't know what all this means yet. And I'll admit I'm just a little bit frightened at the prospect, but I choose to trust you. I surrender. I ask that you would lead and guide me and live your life of love, joy, and peace through me from this day forward. So we're just going to wait a few moments. I'm going to invite you to get up and to come just as you are right now. This is your time with Jesus. This is your time to trust and to surrender to him. We'll wait and then we will pray together and that will be the close of our service. stand with me. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for your word and especially for this passage that we looked at from your sermon on the mount. It's true we can't serve two masters just like we can't go in two directions at the same time. Lord, forgive us where we've invested our lives and our resources in the temporary, where we've been totally consumed with the temporary and we've neglected the eternal. I pray that all of us will leave here with a new resolve, Lord, to give our lives to that which will really matter in the end. Thank you for those who have come forward and just said, Lord, I, I, I don't know what all this means, but I'm all in. And I pray, Lord, and I thank you for those in this congregation, in this church, who are all in and are following you and your direction in their life. I do pray, Lord, for those who are still sitting on the fence, who just aren't sure whether they're prepared to um, be all in for you. I pray, Lord, that you would show them the trajectory of the pathway that they're on and some of the despair that awaits them on that trajectory. Lord, we want to be generous not for the sake of being generous. We want to be generous because there is a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. And so I pray that you would help us to do so cheerfully even when others around us might think we've lost our sanity. Give us the faith, Lord, to believe the truth of what you taught here, that we have only one life, and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Jesus and your kingdom will last. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God be with you. God bless you. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.